It's a blessing to be here this morning with you to open God's word. And before we do, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we open your word this morning, uh, we ask that uh, no untruth would come from this poor speaker, that your word would be honored and glorified by all that we say and do. Uh, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Last time I spoke to you, I committed an unforgivable act for which I was admonished gently yet firmly by Pastor Drake, that act being that I had no Spurgeon quote. So Drake, if you're listening this morning, I'm going to make up for that. We're going to be talking about Psalm 145. And uh, a lot of material that I will share with you this morning, I gleaned from the series of Treasury of David by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. So we're going to be filled with quotes from him and others this morning. We'll be reading a lot of scripture also. And this is because uh, God's word is much more important than anything I have to say. And uh, men who have studied God's word profusely, their quotes will have a lot for us to learn. Uh, if you'll notice, you have an outline in here this morning. Uh, has five points, perfectly alliterated, I might add. They all start with a D. Uh, so Drake will be very proud of me this morning. And uh, I'm going to go two better points than he normally does. So let's, uh, let's look into God's Word now. Sinclair Ferguson, in his uh, lesson called This Is My Father's World, talked about and in creation, God was creating a cathedral, a place where he would have his character displayed and a place where he would have his worshipers uh, to worship him. We know that happened, but then sin entered the world when Adam and Eve decided to believe the lie of Satan rather than to believe God and everything changed. Sin had its effect on all of creation uh, at that very moment. Um, animals would now be killed to make a covering for the sin of Adam and Eve, a sacrifice by God. Did Adam and Eve have to watch that? I don't know. But death had never been in the world before. And if they had to watch the Lord slay this animal to cover their sin, can you imagine the horror? of seeing death for the first time. From now on, the lion would stalk and kill its prey. Cain would murder Abel. And men would create and worship false gods. But the cathedral still stands, and God still has his worshipers who will proclaim his glory. God will have his children always who will worship him and this brings us to our text this morning, Psalm 145. You know, Psalm 23 is probably the most popular psalm by David. But uh, I would say of all of David's 45 psalms, this uh, 145 has to be uh, the crowning achievement of all of the psalms that David has given us. It has a unique title. It's called A Praise of God. In the original, 
this is the only psalm that contains that title. Uh, we see many, a psalm of David, um, a, a uh, prayer of David, but this is the only psalm that is designated a tahillah, which is a praise. It comes from the root word for hallelujah. Uh, and the word tehillah, tehillah, it occurs in the, only in the last verse of this psalm. Uh, the Hebrew title for the book of Psalms is called the Sefer Telahim. Okay? And uh, this is the only one of the Psalms in the Psalter that contains that title. Uh, Augustine, he said this of the Psalms. He said, the Psalms are praises to God accompanied with song. Psalms are songs. Um, containing praises to God. If there be praise but not of God, it is not a psalm. If there be praise and the praise of God, if it is not sung, it is not a psalm. To make a psalm, there go these three things. Praise, God's praise, and a song. And uh, if you look at the title uh, of the psalm, you'll see it is called a song. There was an old Presbyterian scholar whose name was Joseph Addison Alexander. Uh, he entered Princeton uh, the sophomore year at age 15. And he graduated with the highest honors in the class of 29 students. Uh, he had this to say about Psalm 145. He said, this has, happily, uh, has been happily characterized as the new song that was mentioned in Psalm 144 and verse 9, which says, I will sing a new song to you, O God. On the harp of ten strings, I will sing praises to you. Alan Ross, in his Bible knowledge commentary uh, on the book of Psalms, called Psalm 145 the grand doxology of the entire collection. There was, uh, it's said that one, Hebrew, one rabbi had said that if you will recite Psalm 145 three times every day, you will be guaranteed happiness. So I'm going to read it three times and we'll all go home. <laughs> uh, you can't quiet somebody that easily. Um, the outline that you have comes from Spurgeon, in which he has divided the psalm just for purposes of uh, exegesis into five sections. And these five sections is David praises God for his fame and his glory, verses 1 through 7. His goodness, verses 8 through 10. His kingdom, 11 through 13. His providence, verses 14 through 16. And his saving mercy through the last six verses of the chapter 17 through 21. How many times a day do you pray? Let me ask it another way. How many times of the day do you praise God? Most of us say we pray a lot uh, every day. Uh, how many times do we really uh, get down and give thanks God for who he is, what he has done, and praise his holy name? Well, let's look at the first seven verses here. And you'll notice that the first verse contains the title, which is A Song of Praise of David. And he says, I will extol you, my, my God and King, 
and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The first thing that I noticed in this is how personal it is. David's not offering up some sort of a generic praise, but it's very real to him. Look at verse 1. I will extol my God. I will bless. Verse 2. I will bless. I will praise. Verse 5. I will meditate. Verse 6. I will declare. How about that? That's, it's very personal, isn't it? This is his God. And when we go to the Lord in prayer and in praise, we should be thinking that this is my God also. David is a king, but yet he says he will praise, he will extol, he will lift up uh, to the highest places his king. That is the Lord God. He will bless his name. Uh, to bless is uh, an act of adoration or worship, but it has carries with it a sense of uh, the personal, deep, heartfelt uh, sense. And so this is how David approaches. You notice he says every day, uh, he says, I will extol my God, I will bless my God and King forever and ever. In verse 2, he reverses it. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever. And he's not going to leave any stone unturned here. If there be a weakness in one, he's going to catch it in the other. And so um, that's the way we need to think of our God when we come before him. He has no weakness. We do. But we want to be sure that his praise uh, is on our lips. And he says he will praise your name forever and ever. What's with that? Forever is forever. So why do they go forever and ever? Well, David is making sure that the blessings here will have no end. Spurgeon added this. His notation of duration is a full one. Forever has no end. But when he adds another forever to it, he forbids all idea of a close. And so it's reinforcing again that the praise that belongs to God goes on forever and ever. And our praise to God should be as eternal as the God we praise. There was a Methodist nonconformist who lived in the 1800s named William Morley Poonshan. Uh, he was a preacher in the U.S. and Canada, and he had this to say about forever and ever. He said, Praise is the only part of duty in which we at present engage, which uh, is lasting. We pray, but there shall be a time when prayer um, shall offer its last litany. We believe, but there shall be a time when faith shall be lost in sight. We hope, and hope maketh not a shame, but there shall be a time when hope lies down and it dies, lost in the splendor 
of the fruition that God shall reveal. But praise goes singing into heaven, ready to strike the harp that is waiting, that is waiting for it, to transmit for all eternity the song of the Lamb. Think about that. Praise goes on forever. Prayer may cease. Um, Faith may cease when it becomes sight. But prayer will go on forever. In verse 3 then, he goes on to say, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. Uh, Our praise should be as great as the God that we praise. There's no choir that could ever... um, sing pure enough, loud enough, no orchestra with even perfect music. Uh, There's no sound that is ever enough to praise the Lord of hosts. We strain even to think about um, and to understand the greatness of God. And the psalmist here, David, says it's unsearchable. Uh, Someone has said that Without Christ, men can only find out, find out very little about God. But with Christ, men can find God. Okay? It is the Christ who reveals the Father. Jesus said, you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So it is through Christ that we really come to know God. In verse 4, he talks about commending the works of God. Uh, It was a command to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 6. God commands that his mighty works uh, that the Israelites had seen with their eyes uh, be taught to their children and their grandchildren. And he adds, lest they forget. It's our high honor and duty to teach our generations about the works of God. Here at Terrell Bible Church, we try to do that through our Sunday school, through our morning worship, through our evening services, our Wednesdays, our teaching times, and Bible stories. And I think it's good for all of us to be here for those. Uh, I hate to see that so many miss the goodness of a Sunday evening or the good teaching about God and his wonderful works that we have on Wednesdays and other times. If we are the teachers, I think we need to be here to show our children that we believe what we're talking about, that we believe the mighty works of God, that we believe that he brought them out of Egypt, that he put plagues on Egypt, that he destroyed the Egyptian army, that he led them through the wilderness, and so on. And then in the New Testament, that we believe that Christ died for our sin, was resurrected, that while he was here, uh, he healed many illnesses. He um, made the blind see and the lame walk. All of these things we need to teach our children that we believe those also. And we need to do that lest we forget. In verse 5 and 6, goes on to say, They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. I will declare your greatness. They pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. David does not want to forget the splendor of God, and he says that he will meditate on those. He is going to meditate on those 
wonderful, mighty deeds and wondrous works of God, if that's good enough for David, shouldn't we do that also? To meditate on those wonderful works, to think about them, to ponder them, to let them be a part of our regular thinking. Uh, the majesty of God's works, uh, that alone, I think, is where they shall speak of your might. Not only those uh, who believe the works that God has done, but the works themselves will, will speak of the might of God. And the word here, to speak, doesn't mean just to allude to, but it means to proclaim at large loudly and forcefully that they will speak of the mighty works of God, the mighty awesome deeds. There are particulars in these mighty works. And I mentioned some of them, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the things that God has done. There are particulars. We, saw, we, we know them. People saw them. Jesus did them. God did them in the Old Testament. And these particulars, I think, are like a a rung in a ladder. Uh, as we ponder each one of these marvelous works uh, and the deeds that God has done, it kind of carries us higher and higher and closer to, to a relationship with God. And these particulars must be passed on from generation to generation. But what about the mighty deeds of, and works that God has done in our lives? Think of what God has done for you in your life. Um, is there anything worthy of praise? Of course there is. For me, uh, I think how God miraculously saved me from a terrible plane crash. Uh, how God led me to Susan. Uh, how God placed me in a dental school where I became a believer through the testimony of uh, other students. Uh, how God let my, led my family here to Terrell Bible Church. How God blessed us with children and grandchildren, particularly grandchildren. Uh, we, could, we could go on and on, couldn't we, with the things that God has done. And I think these things we need to pass on to our children. They don't just happen. They don't just happen. God does them in his mighty works. You know, some people have a little shelf or a cabinet uh, in their home where they'll put little knickknacks that will remind them of things that God has done in their life. If God provided them a house, they might have a little picture, a picture of a house or of the house that God gave them. Uh, their salvation, they might have a picture uh, or a little statue of a cross. Something there to remind them of what God has done in their lives. Not a bad idea. Um, <clears throat> All of these things, these marvelous works of God, has prompted David to write in verse 7. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The fame of God, the works that he has done, are never to be forgotten. Not the things in scripture and not the things that he has done in our lives. We need to remember those and call on those. Then he goes on in verses 8 through 10 to talk about God's goodness. Now I wonder if David had in mind here what the Lord said to Moses in Exodus. In verse 34, uh, uh, chapter 34 and verse 6 of Exodus. Um, it says, the Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord 
the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. As we look at the passage here, verse 8 says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Matthew Henry writes, There is a foundation of goodness in God's nature. The Lord is gracious to those who serve. He is full of compassion to those who need him, slow to anger to those who have offended him, and of great mercy to all that seek him and call to him. He is ready to give and ready to forgive, more ready than we are to ask and more ready than we are to repent. Man's sin is great, but God's mercy, God's grace is greater. And of his steadfast love, what can we say more than, than John wrote? God is love. In verse 9 then, it says, The goodness of God's character is shown forth. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. God's goodness of character is only matched by the goodness of what he does. He has provided everything that his creation needs. The Lord is good to all. We know that. Rain falls on all. Food comes to everyone. Shelter. Uh, but there's a special goodness in Christ. Uh, which is on all whom God draws. And we saw last week when Pastor Drake went through chapter 6. He explained that verse. Um, who are the loved by Christ, redeemed by him, justified and glorified by him, those for whom he laid down his life to be the satisfaction for our sin. Does that seem to be a mighty work from the goodness of God? Uh, probably the greatest thing God has ever done was to send his son to die for our sin in our place. Uh, while his mercy and his uh, <clears throat> goodness extends to everything that he has made, uh, his special mercy is most evident in the new creatures that he has made. We are new creations in Christ. We are called his workmanship. His workmanship. We are the work of his hands. And we get to verse 10. <clears throat> It says, all your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless thee. And we sang this morning, holy, 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 all the saints adore thee. The scripture this morning, the call to worship, the two hymns, uh, were a perfect lead-in to Psalm 145, almost as if somebody had planned it. <laughs> so verse 10, uh, there's something about Every creature, which Spurgeon says, another quote, there's something about every creature which redounds to the honor of God. The skill, kindness, and power manifested in the formation of each living creature is in itself praise to God. And when observed by, by the intelligent mind, the Lord is honored thereby. Some works praise him by their being, others by their well-being some by their mere existence and others by their hearty volition. 
I think of all that, uh, all the creation, not just the creatures will praise God. Remember when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey and the crowds were yelling, um, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and glory to God in the highest. Well, the Pharisees said to Jesus, I want you to quiet those people down. And what did Jesus say? If they don't speak, these stones will. Uh, there is nothing in creation that is incapable of praising God, uh, living creatures or inanimate things. It made me think of uh, Psalm 148. If you think that only living creatures can praise God, think again. Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the highest. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all hosts. Praise him, sun, moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you sea creatures and all the deeps. Fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy winds fulfilling his word. Mountains and all fruit trees and cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens, together old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted, and his majesty is above the earth and heaven. So it's not just his living creatures that can praise his name. Then he goes on to the end of the uh, verse 10. He says, and all your saints shall bless you. Um, I have a quote here from John Gill. John Gill lived in the 1700s. He pastored the same church that Spurgeon would pastor 100 years later. And in his quote, he says of these saints, these are they that are set apart by the Lord of whom his favors are bestowed and who are sanctified by his blood and also by his spirit and being sensible of the blessings of the grace they receive from him they rise up and call him blessed and ascribe blessing, honor, and glory and praise to him forever and ever are you thinking what I'm thinking right now? that's us that's us we are the ones who have been blessed by God's favor. We're the ones who have been sanctified. We're the ones that receive uh, the blessings from him. We're the ones to rise up and praise him. I might mention tonight, it's kind of, kind of a special night. Uh, we're going to have some testimonies and you will hear in those um, the mighty things that God has done um, for those whom he has set apart. So I encourage you, be here tonight for testimonies if you're really interested in that. Uh, I love to hear testimonies because it, it tells me that uh, the stupid things that I've done in my life, everybody else has done them also. And so it's good to hear that. Uh, he says then in the last verse there um, that they shall speak of the glory. Of, okay, now we're in the next part. Um, 
verses 11 through 13, where uh, they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. And who is the they that will speak of the glory? Well, these are the saints that he just mentioned. And don't forget also the works of his greatness speak of his glory. So what about the glory of God's kingdom? Uh, Kingdom here is in a broad sense. Um, It is now. It is in eternity. And in verse 13 he says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. We think about kingdoms on earth and kings. Um, The kings of the earth, kings of this world, they have a limited population within their realm. Uh, They have a limited wealth. They have limited resources. But God reigns over all. He reigns over the angels, the demons, men, and all the wealth of his creation and all the resources of his creation are his. The kings of this world may rule over their subjects, but they are dependent on their subjects. For without them, they have no power, they have no buildings, they have no empire, they have no army. God is not subject to anyone. He needs nobody. He needs no help or assistance. The kings of this world are always in fear of other kings and the next king. How many family members did Herod kill in fear that someone would take his throne? Well, God is not subject to fear. The kings of this world rule for a short time. Kings often go by numbers. James I, James II, uh, George IV, and so on. Uh, But God reigns forever, not just a short time. In verse 12, if we go back to there, it says, To make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. It's too bad that we can't teach these things in our educational system. We used to once, didn't we? Um, Our students in elementary school and high schools would memorize a scripture for every letter of the alphabet. Um, They were raised on scriptures. They learned to read in scriptures. Uh, Not anymore. Um, The state will not teach these things and give tribute to God. And so it's his people, it is us, that has to do that. We need to do it because men have short memories when it comes to God. How long did it take the Israelites to forget about God and start worshiping other gods? About in Europe, the home of the Reformation, now almost desolate of churches. How about here in America? As we see the blessings that God has bestowed upon this nation. And now we cannot mention his name in public. When we call someone forth to pray, we want to censor those prayers so that they're talking to some cosmic being out there. Um, Mother Earth, Father Earth, Father Time, Old Man River, whatever they want to Uh, give their prayer to that's who they do but not to the living God we have short memories so we're the ones that has to be the historians of the past 
we're the men and women who must be the wisdom of the present. And we must be the ones to proclaim the future hope that is out there waiting. But you know what? We have to first know it, don't we? We have to know it. Uh, that's why Terrell Bible Church is here. Uh, to prepare us to speak of the glory of the kingdom of God. May I use another Spurgeon quote? I'm going to anyway. He says of these three verses, 11, 12, and 13. He says, these three verses are a reverent hymn concerning the kingdom of God and are best appreciated by those who are in the kingdom. We are to speak of it, tell of it, and make it known, and then we are to acknowledge it in praise directed to the Lord himself. That's our job. That's our job as Christians, to proclaim the Lord. We come now to verses 14. Uh, let's see. Find it here. Verses 14, 15, and 16. And we read here, The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. In these three verses, God is praised for his uh, provisions for men and other creatures. Um, it properly follows the praise for his kingdom because this tells us how God rules in his kingdom. Got too many papers here. And note the, uh, note the three things here in these verses. Uh, he upholds. He raises up. He gives. He satisfies. These are present tense active verbs. They're not something that was done in the past. These are continuing uh, on and on through all eternity. God is active in his kingdom. He has not left us here alone to fend for ourselves. It's another reason to praise him. He upholds all who fall, raises up those who are bowed down. Um, this is true, true in a general sense for his creatures. Uh, it is true for widows, for orphans, for the weak, for the helpless. Uh, but these are true especially for his children. Reminded me of Matthew chapter 5. Most of you know this, the Beatitudes. Very similar. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. 
For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So he upholds them all. Good for us to remember that. Uh, King David, if you'll remember, did King David fall? Oh, many times he fell on his sin with Bathsheba. Um, was he bowed down? Well, think when uh, Nathan confronted him about his sin. Remember those famous words? Thou art the man. David didn't offer any protest. He didn't offer any excuses. He was bowed about as low as he could go. And God raised him up. Then in verses 15 and 16, it says, The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Reminded me again of... uh, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6 says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you shall eat, what you shall drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day of trouble. John Calvin said about he gives their food in due season. He said if were the whole supply poured forth at one and the same moment, it could not be gathered so conveniently. And we have no small reason to admire the seasonableness with which the different kinds of fruit and aliment are yearly produced. Imagine if all the food came due at one time, every crop to be harvested at once. God knows our needs. He brings it forth in due season. I read that comment over and over, and I wondered where he said the different kinds of fruit, and I read ailment instead of aliment. And I kept thinking, what in the world is he talking about there? And I looked at it a little closer and said ailment. Ailment's just our food, our sustenance, our nourishment. God provides it all yearly. There was a story of a poor boy in Scotland who was accustomed to seeing the unexpected provisions for his mother's wants arrive uh, in answer to prayer. Um, The meal barrel, which is where they kept their flour, their food, he said, is everything to a hungry boy. And so the boy said, Mither, I think God I hears 
when we are scraping the bottom of the barrel. That's my Scottish accent. <laughs> you thought it was Alistair Begg, didn't you? Okay. But how about that? He hears us best when we scrape the bottom of the barrel. And then we come to verse 16. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Uh, I think the idea that God would would even open his hand and satisfy any desire at all is an act of grace, um, not just providence. God is gracious. Uh, but there is more here than just um, physical provision. John Gill, I like to quote again, he said this, um, These words may be rendered and satisfies every living one with that which is acceptable with favor, with God, uh, with goodwill, with loving kindness, which is better than life, as all living saints are or will be. God satisfies every living one with that which is acceptable with favor. He goes on to say further that not all uh, will get their desires. We know that, don't we? Uh, and I'm, I'm glad we don't. If all evil men got their desires, we'd be in trouble. But Gil goes on to say, Every carnal, lustful, worldly, and covetous man who never says that he has enough or is, neither satis is never satisfied, they will not receive the blessing of God. But, he goes on to say, Of every one... That is made spiritually alive, quickened by the Spirit and the grace of God. These desire spiritual things, spiritual food, more grace and more communion with God and conformity to Christ. And these desires are before the Lord. Sooner or later, they are all satisfied and all are met. It depends on what our desires are that we bring before God. Is our desire to know him? It is our desire to be like Christ. It is our desire to honor and worship the Lord God. Well, then we come to the closing verses of Psalm 145. And here we read, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. In these we see, I think, the saving mercy of God. Uh, he is near to all who call upon him. Um, who are those that call upon him? Now, these are the ones who, whom God draws. Those are the ones that call upon him and call upon him in truth. Um, God is inherently good, and he can do only good. But what about when bad things happen or evil things happen? And the key word today that I hear so often is, that's not fair. Uh, if you're a teacher, you're going to hear that a whole lot. You graded my paper, 
you gave me a C. That's not fair. How does a, how does a student describe his A? I made an A. You gave me a C. That's the way it goes. It's not fair. You ever said it's not fair? Yeah, you probably have, but that's all right. We think, why is this happening to me? Where was God when this was happening? Well, God was in the same place where he was when his son was suffering on the cross. So take, take note. God is always there. Our problem is that we can't always see things from, a, from an eternal perspective. We're stuck in the here and now. That seems to be where we live instead of living with Christ in glory. Uh, what one thing that we can be sure of is that everything that happens to us, everything that happens on this earth, is to the ultimate glory of God. That is the purpose of all that happens. God is near to all those who call on him in, tr- him in truth. Uh, how can one call on God? Well, Pastor Drake went through that. Uh, God draws him. We saw in chapter 6. Um, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draw him. And how is one drawn to Christ? Um, the natural man is dead. And what can a dead man do? can't do anything. He can lay there, sometimes look better than he did in life. But that's about all a dead man can do. Ephesians 2 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then those beautiful words. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Those wonderful words, uh, but God. It's God who made us alive. We were dead. Uh, But when the Spirit of God caused us to be born again, it's then that we can call on God for salvation. And now God opens his hand and he satisfies the desire. And here's the key. He satisfies the desire of every living thing. Uh, We once were, were dead, but now we're alive. And that open hand of God is for us. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. That's us, his children. We revere him. He hears their cry and he saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him. Psalm 37 reads, verses 23, The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he will not be cast headlong. For the Lord upholds his hand. I've been young and now I'm old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging bread. And then we have some very, I think, disturbing words. It says, the Lord preserves all who love him. But all the wicked he will destroy. This is Satan his minions, all the enemies of Christ, those who oppose Christ, those who oppose the gospel, those who um, 
worship the beast and the false prophet, all these will be cast into the lake of fire uh, to be left there for eternity in punishment uh, so that there will not be a wicked man left on earth. Malachi 4 verse 1 says, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming that shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch, utterly destroyed. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness rises with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. What a somber ending, or close to the ending of this psalm. Um, to me, it's, it's, it's kind of out of place there. But for David, it was not. For David, uh, believing that God is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works, he closes his psalm with this, um, this wonderful message, which should be our message. My mouth will speak the praises of God and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Is that where we will be? You know that um, Sinclair Ferguson said this morning, what do you think about when you have nothing else to think about? Where do your thoughts go? Will your thoughts go to praising God? Will we open our mouth and speak the praises of the Lord? David says, let all flesh bless his holy name forever. Here ends the psalm. What a great way to end the psalm. That his mouth will speak the praises of the Lord. And all flesh bless his holy name. Not just forever. But forever and ever. Our Heavenly Father. How grateful we are for this marvelous psalm. Which tells us of your mighty works. Your mighty deeds. The splendor of your glory which draws us, Father, to, to give you praise. Father, may that be from our heart every day as we pray every day. May we also praise every day from now until eternity. And that praise, Father, will be carried into your heaven. And there we will worship you and praise you forever and ever. Thank you, Lord, for your marvelous word. Thank you for having David pen this for us, that we might have it today. Help us to reflect on it and to remember that praise to you will never go away empty. We thank you for all of this in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.